Hi, this is Father Joseph Anthony Cress. And this is Father Gregory Pine. Welcome to God's Planning, and thank you to all who support us. Uh, if you enjoy this show, please consider making a monthly donation on our Patreon page. Please be sure to like, subscribe, follow, share God's Planning um, wherever you listen to your podcast. Father Gregory, it's always good to have you and good to spend time with you. We're continuing our series on the Eucharist. Uh, this is kind of our last episode, our last installment of our uh, multi-part series. And today uh, we'll be looking at kind of the culmination of the Eucharist built upon uh, everything we've talked about, whether that was the doctrine, the the liturgy, the sacrifice, the renewal aspects of it, devotion. And we're kind of drawing all that together in today's episode on union within the sacrifice or with union within the Eucharist. Um, and what does that mean for us as those who celebrate it? And what does that mean for us who uh, receive the Eucharist as well? But before I get into that, I was thinking earlier and I was like, okay, how do we uh, launch into this? But just from your experience as a priest, where has been the like most unique in, yeah, most unique place that you've been able to celebrate mass? You've been all over the world. You've seen you've seen things, yeah. Where's the u most unique place you've celebrated mass? I have been, yeah. I've been to some places in the world. Um, <laughs> I went to a conference hosted by the Thomistic Institute in Rome. Mm -hmm. So living in Freiburg, Rome's like you know an a, an hour flight away. I I happen to take the train on this particular instance, uh, but on my way back, I stopped in Bologna, which is like one of the first places where the order was founded or where the order was implanted, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And St. Dominic was there when he died. So St. Dominic's relics uh, are in Bologna. He was buried in the choir, you know, at the feet of the brethren. And then they subsequently, uh, what do you call it, exhumed him or disinterred him as part of the process of his canonization, discovered that a sweet odor came from his relics. And then he was kind of set aside at a side altar in this beautiful reliquary. And there's an altar erected atop it. So I, I stopped in Bologna, visited with the brothers there and celebrated mass at his tomb. Mm -hmm. And it's cool because I celebrated the Dominican rite um, and, you know, which would have been the rite, something along the lines of the rite, which St. Dominic would have celebrated. So the Dominican rite wasn't codified until after he died, but he's pulling together different aspects of the Roman <laughs> liturgy and then yeah. the Gallic liturgy and what was on offer at the time. And I was there with friars of the province of Bologna of Northern Italy one of whom served and then one of whom assisted. And they were super generous to me. Um, yeah, they were really hospitable. So it was a cool experience of, yeah, Eucharistic union insofar as, you know, like we had this image where we all partake of a, of a certain grace given to St. Dominic. And um, I was kind of rendering that grace back as it were in Thanksgiving cool. in union with him, but then in union with his sons alive here and now in the flesh. So. There's a, a sense there of the tradition and a sense there of the grace that is ongoing. So that was awesome. Um, and I was very grateful for that opportunity. Um, how about you? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a, I would say there have been some really unique times um, as a chaplain that you get to celebrate Mass um, in on retreats and different things like that for students. But there was one time that um, I'm thinking is particular, we went hiking up over on the Blue Ridge and the Appalachian Trail and kind of like shot off on this side trail and this beautiful overlook uh, over the valley. And there were a few rocks there and just kind of set, set up shop. 
said mass for our group, a small group of students and um, brought a monstrance with us and did adoration, just like looking out over top of the valley. There were like eagles soaring and, and everything. And it's just like just watching this thing. And yeah, uh, this is it. This is the way it should be. Like there's a creator of the universe, like right there in the midst of his, the beauty of his creation. But he's looking at us and we're looking at him through all of this. And so those are the moments where I'm like, okay, yeah, I, 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 I like this. I like this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but we're talking about union. Um, it is something that has come up multiple times in the podcast as we talk about the Christian life is one about union with Jesus, one about union with God and how sin destroys that union. Sin places these obstacles from that. And so this becomes, uh, I hope for our listeners, and if it were first-time listeners, that it's something that you, you find that we are emphatic on is that the that God himself desires for us to be united to him, desires us to be one with him. Um, and he gives us the opportunities to accomplish that union, not just to desire it, but also the means to accomplish this union through his grace, um, through his activity and work. But before we dive into that, specifically how it connects to the Eucharist, I want to talk a little bit about, well, okay, what are we talking about when we do talk about union? So what do we, when we keep saying this word, but let's break that down and help to understand that more. So what do we mean by union in, in this way? Yeah. Um... So union is typically described by comparison to unity and unity is what would you say? It's a kind of indivision. So we say that those things are unified, okay. which aren't divided, which aren't all out of sorts, which aren't oddsy endsy, but which have a kind of integrity. They have a, have a kind of wholeness. And on the basis of that, you know, they have a kind of beauty as well. Mm -hmm. um, and union is seeking to kind of draw things into that unity. So into that integrity into that wholeness and into the beauty that results from it. So I seek to be in union with myself, you know, to a certain degree or extent insofar as, you know, I am myself, I subsist in my nature, I, I exhaust who I am. Uh, but I can be odds about that, or I can be all out of sorts, if I reject certain aspects of my personality, or if I wish that it were otherwise, or if I'm not wholly at peace with the state of affairs. Mm -hmm. um, so you're, you're seeking a kind of union. But when you kind of search into your own personality, you find more personal to yourself than you, in fact, are is God, because God is more intimate to ourselves than we, in fact, are. And so when it comes to, you know, like establishing a kind of union, we, we find God at the center, right? Mm -hmm. So we're trying to be present to the God who is already and always present to us by virtue of the fact that he makes us to be and then makes us to act um, and then seeking to be at one with ourselves and then seeking to be at one with others as well. In the mm -hmm. sense that we can share a common, common like enterprise or a common purpose, but even more fundamentally that we can share a common love, right? Love being like you will the good of the beloved and the beloved wills your good. You share a, a common life and a common conversation. And as a result of which you attain to a certain union, which is, you know, based on your relationships. So we would say, you know, like Jerusalem is a compact unity in the words of the psalmist <laughs> insofar yeah. as Jerusalem yeah. knows who it is, right? And knows who it is not by comparison to its pagan neighbors. But you can say of, you know, like a family, you know, like this is a really unified family. They present a really unified front. Mm -hmm. um, so we're seeking to establish a union which reflects something of the unity, which is at the heart of reality. And that'll take on a particular shape, obviously, in the life of the Eucharist. 
Yeah, I think that that's really important as, as you were talking to see that like, okay, there's union with God, um, union within the self and union with others. And that kind of like threefold breakdown in all of it is able to be accomplished and um, because of you know, sin and, and fallen human nature, each one of those relationships does have a little bit of damage to it. And so there, there, it, nothing's ever in its absolute um, perfection, but it can move towards that. So as we begin to talk about um, the Eucharist and, and actually building upon union as connected to this unity um, in those kind of three areas, I think it's always good to keep that in mind and see how the graces affect and, and order towards true union in each one of those areas. Um, and as you were talking about kind of this union of God, um, within the self, the, uh, in, within the people of God around. Um, so how, how do we enter into that? Um, because there is something that it's kind of, um, it's accessible and it's able to be received by us, but this is not something that we can kind of accomplish ourselves. And it's not this, um, kind of natural thing. So what are we entering into actually that is allowing for this to happen? Yeah, it's fun. I was actually thinking about this. This is not an episode about transgenderism, but I was thinking about this recently because I was thinking about transgenderism and I was fascinated by the fact that, you know, like most people in the world experience conflict, right? And those conflicts are different, right? So it's not to say that all conflicts are of a similar sort because they each have their own peculiar nature. But in the case of like gender dysphoria, the idea is like, all right, there's a conflict at the very core of my being insofar as I have difficulty identifying who I am and how I relate to my body. That's more complex than that, I suppose, but there you go. Um, and instead of like seeking a source of resolution outside of oneself, one kind of dictates the terms of the resolution and says, all right, I'm going to make a pretty drastic change on my own terms, which is fascinating because it's entirely contrary to a Christian anthropology because we recognize the fact that we were made in a way that reflected the unity of God, right? We were made in a state of right. what the fathers of the church called original justice or rectitude. So there was a kind of gentle balance or like a, a sweet unity which was established in our very members because our minds were subject to god our lower powers like our, our emotions our passions were subject to our higher powers which is to say our intellects and wills and then uh, our bodies were subject to our souls and that integrity um kind of radiated through the entirety of our nature and we experienced it um as something symphonic or harmonic but then we sinned against it and we we lost it right we we surrendered the union, the unity that we had at first, and now it's for us to recapture it or to reconstitute it. And we discover right at the outset that we lack the resources to do so Yeah, because you can't make grace with not grace, right? You have to receive grace, which is fascinating. So when it comes to establishing union, we look to the God from whom that union flows. And we hear, you know, like when you, when you think about it, what is it that we are called to? What do we describe it as? A, a Trinitarian communion, you know, the communion mm -hmm. of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's distinction of persons and yet perfect identity of essence in God. If there is a model for union, it is that. And insofar as, you know, like we're distinct persons and we're not going to attain to that same kind of Trinitarian communion, yet we can enjoy something of it, right? We can participate something of it. So whenever it comes to seeking union, whether that's a resolution of a relationship right now, which is tense, or whether that's uh, like trying to bring about greater solidarity among the people with whom you work, or whether it's trying to attain the goals of your parish community, like whatever union it is that you're searching for, right? It's going to be found from God and in God, 
And God gives expression to that unity in particular ways, one of which most, I suppose, concrete of which is the Eucharist, which is kind of where we're headed. So God is the source, God is the end of union, but you can probably spell that out uh, better, more at greater length. Well, th this is so important to understand is the fact that like, I think because we, you know, our, um, our experience, our memories, what we can point to is that of a fallen um, human nature of an experience and a living out of this kind of disunity. But it's so helpful and, and important to remember that we were actually created in original justice. And this is, even though if we haven't had an experience of it, but this is actually what we were, our origins was this perfect rectitude in this, this perfect unity. And so even if we don't have that kind of lived experience of it, doesn't mean it isn't worth pursuing and that it's actually a good thing. So the presence of a disunity doesn't mean that the unity never happened or is it is undesirable or is unattainable, but the presence of the disunity actually can be a major motivator for saying, okay, this isn't correct, this isn't right, whether that's an interior disunity or a disunity amongst the community or you feel um, however that is experienced out. But saying like, no, 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 I was, I was made with this intention in mind and you can see the ordering of that and then to pursue that. Now, as you were saying that like grace can't come from not grace, like that's probably, we can bumper sticker that out, then we might be able to put that in our store and sell them. But um, there, there's such an importance to that is that um, the process, the uh, work of reestablishing unity is actually God's work within us because he's the one who originally created us in that unity. And so it can be frustrating to say like, oh, I experience, I live in this disunity. I wish this wasn't the case. I can create the problem, but I not, can't necessarily get out of the problem. I can dig myself into the hole, but I can't necessarily crawl out. So in that, you know, what's, what's the kind of back and forth or, you know, how do we engage with that reception of grace to establish the unity again? Or how, how does the Lord offer that and, and engage with this desire for unity within each of his children? Yeah, I think the first answer is in Christ. Um, and I just, my the second chapter of my dissertation is, is basically about this question. Ooh, I, I've said that way too many tell. times for a variety do of different tell. questions, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, Dude, I mean, it's second chapter like, is I, the second bar. chapter of my dissertation basically treats of the unity established in Christ and also of chai tea. Um, because I use that, <laughs> yeah. yeah, to cover a lot of things, but it does treat of this question. And what's fascinating is that you see the Lord take the initiative in especially sovereign fashion in our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's like, all right, guys, have you, have you had your dream shattered on the cruel rocks of reality and come to discover that you lack the resources necessary to kindle the divine life in your members? Okay. Watch this. I'm going to take <laughs> the human nature and assume it. Uh, and we're like, whoa, you did what? So there's this whole patristic tradition where the healing of our nature is already at work in Christ. Ooh. So not that Christ needs healing. He doesn't, right? So not that Christ needs saving. He doesn't. But that he performs salvation, which is to say he performs the manifestation and communication of divine life in his flesh. So when you look to our Lord Jesus Christ, you see what it means for us to attain to a certain union with the Godhead. Because it's in him, right? So we refer to that assumption of a human nature whereby it is kind of rooted, as it were, in the divine person. We refer to that as the hypostatic union, right? So it's the highest imaginable, you know, created union. 
Uh, it is the source of all subsequent created unions in the supernatural order. So our Lord says, this is what it looks like for a human nature to be wed to the Godhead. Again, that's a peculiar grace afforded to the second person of the most blessed Trinity subsisting in human flesh, but it becomes the pattern, the model, it becomes the exemplar of mm -hmm. all subsequent union. So this, this process of healing and of growing is already at work in Christ. Again, not that he needs it or not that he benefits from it, but that he is the monstrance of it. And then when he like lives his life in human flesh, he is, it were, rehearsing our salvation. He's putting us through the steps. Um, not, yeah, well, he's, he's doing that so that we yeah. look to him as our exemplar, not as like, a, oh, I might prayerfully consider doing these things in the future, but um, right now I'm just going to eat some Sour Patch Kids. But in the sense that when we behold, you know, what is manifest and what is communicated, it actually changes us. So our Lord is a real cause in human flesh. He is a real exemplar in human flesh. He is a real protagonist in human flesh. And that draws us into the drama of salvation, whereby we ourselves attain to a kind of union with the Godhead on the pattern of his own. Um, so that union, that Trinitarian communion, which we seek with which, without which we cannot, you know, enjoy any good thing on heaven or, or in heaven or on earth. All right. It, it, it comes to us by the initiative of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is wild. I think, okay. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. So there's, there's going to be a few things that we get to with the, you know, the graces of Christ and, and him being the exemplar. Um, but as he's setting forth this pattern, right, he's also just not saying, Hey, look at me, look at me, look at me, but he's giving us directly what it looks like and say, no, 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 this is the pattern. Like I'm, I'm going to just spell this out for you. And I think that's the most clearly explained or presented in the last supper discourse in john right i mean he just he's coming back to it again and again what does this mean to be united to him is this is the last thing he says before he goes about his crucifixion right and he's saying i'm the vine you're the branches i no longer call you slaves i call you friends you know i, I desire that they may be one as you father and i are one. like so like he's just saying like this is about deep unity with me and he just like keeps using these different images to say like hey i've i've we've Everything else up in my life to this point has been like talking about this, but like without as the most direct as it can be, we are to be one. We are to be united. We are to be in union with each other as as this looks like. And um, so I, I think that's like so important to see. And that's why I love the Last Supper Discourse. One of the great Dominican traditions um, is during Holy Week uh, on um during was it the the adoration of the blessed sacrament after those uh liturgy of the last supper um there's the reading of the sermo domini the final um the the last supper discourse in its entirety and so you're sitting there you know in adoration hearing these words spoken anew and afresh and it's just this like kind of repetition just drilling it into it and so much we read scripture in their paragraphs or in their chapters and that's it but when you just read from start to finish the last supper discourse you just see how deeply and how emphatic the lord is that like we are to be one and and united in in this deep love of which he's then going to accomplish um so yeah i i, I love the <laughs> love the last supper discourse but as you're talking about that that's like ugh, it, it's how important that is um Okay, so he's the exemplar for us. 
let's dive in a little bit of that. Like, what are those graces? And so we talk about exemplary causality, but let's move into the graces then um, of his humanity, him taking on the incarnation or in the incarnation, taking on our humanity to then establish this unity with us who, who don't have that. Yeah. So our Lord, you know, he, he, he partakes of this grace of union in his human nature. And the grace of union is the source of further graces. So that, mm -hmm. that grace gets into all the nooks and crannies of his humanity, which we would say is his habitual grace. And St. Thomas will say that our Lord has a quasi-infinite habitual grace, which Ooh. is to say our Lord can't grow in grace in the strict sense. And so I'll say like when you hear these things described in the scriptures, it means that our Lord gives evidence to grace and to knowledge at each stage of his life in a way that's fitting for each stage in his life. You know, so when he's 12 years old, he gives... He gives testimony to a grace and a knowledge befitting a 12 year old, albeit mm -hmm. a very precocious 12 year old. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, like we see that that grace and that knowledge manifested along the way uh, in a kind of pedagogical or mystagogical sense. Uh, but our Lord has a quasi infinite grace from the moment of his conception. And then that grace becomes the grace of the church. And he'll refer to this, St. Thomas will refer to this as his capital grace, capital just coming from the word caput, which means head, which is to say that we constitute as members of the church with Christ, one mystical person, una persona mystica, or as, you know, like the language of St. Paul in the sacred scriptures, that we are the mystical body of Christ. All right. So that we together with him constitute the one worshiping Christ before the throne of God almighty. Mm -hmm. And so the grace which we receive from our Lord Jesus Christ is a kind of organic lifeblood, right? So you said vine and branches. It's, it's the very sap that flows through the Godhead and our lives, as it were. Um, so it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The way in which we describe this phenomenon is very, it's very intense, right? It's very urgent. Oh, yeah. And, and so, yeah, it's like what you have here is this articulation of the life of grace as it, as it passes from Christ into his body, into the ecclesial body, um, which, you know, is ultimately furnished by a celebration of the Eucharist, but is is a reality that embraces the whole of our ecclesial life. And I think this is where, like, maybe we're gonna hit the turn signal and actually then turn on to the main driveway here because we're you know what twenty minutes in and we haven't really even talked about the <laughs> Eucharist. We're like, yeah, union. But l l so this is the capital grace, right? The head and the members, and so how like this is what this looks like, and we participate in the capital graces of the Lord, and we form this um, unified body that is the worshiping body of Christ um, by the reception of the Eucharist. Um, in Aquinas's um, structure of the tripartite uh, structure of the sacraments, he talks about the res tantum. So the thing itself is with respect to the Eucharist is actually the union of the mystical body. And when the sacrament is celebrated, and those that receive it are truly united in sacramental bonds to each other as forming that one body. And that, that is a real grace, and that is the, the fruit of, of the sacrament, is this unified ecclesial body. Um, and maybe we think of the reception of Eucharist as being very individual and personally uh, or expressions of personal devotion and these types of things. But it, it's it very important to realize that this is the source of unity of the mystical body of church is the Eucharist itself. It's not just um, decrees or, um, you know, geographic things or the source of unity throughout the entirety of the mystical body of the church is truly the Eucharist. 
And so it's so important to see that as everything coming back to participation and reception, that that is the establishing of the bonds of the members of the body of Christ. Um, yeah. No, in, yeah, go for it. In, in the second episode, in the doctrine episode, we talked about a lot about the signification of the sacrament since, mm -hmm. you know, that's so crucial to our understanding of it. And then the third episode, we talked a lot about the change, uh, which is to say the, the rest of sacramentum, the intermediate effects, you know, the, yeah. our Lord's real presence. And here you see the term, you see the point for which, because when St. Thomas talks about the signification of the sacrament, he says it signifies with respect to past, present, and future. Past it's the passion, present, grace and virtue, future. It's an eschatological reality towards which it gestures. And when describing the sacrament of the Eucharist, he, he highlights these three different modes according to which the sacrament signifies. So twofold consecration of exsanguination signifies the past event of the passion, the power of which is released. And then he says the fact that we take it under the form of common nourishment signifies the fact of the grace and virtue communicated through reception, specifically the kindling of charity. And then he says, all right, out of many grains, one loaf, out of many grapes, one chalice, so too, out of many Christians, one worshiping Christ. Oh. So he says, the elements themselves capture in their signification the final effect, but that final effect passes through the intermediate effect, which is to say the real presence, because we are incorporated into the mystical body and thus into the Godhead by virtue of the body of Christ, right? We pass in and through his body to become an ecclesial body. And so it's, you know, it's commonly said that the Eucharist makes the church insofar as, like you said, the final term or the final effect of the whole celebration of the sacred liturgy is for this point, right? Mm -hmm. The union mm -hmm. of the mystical body, but it passes through the union of his real presence of his body, blood, soul, and divinity present locally in heaven, present substantially on the altar. And so you see like this masterwork, as it were, of divine <laughs> revelation and grace come to its term ultimately in our being constituted one in Christ in God unto the praise of his glory. And it's like, boom, that is where it cashes out. <laughs> yeah. It's just, oh my gosh. And, and to think that this happens, I mean, every day, multiple times a day in the depth. And it's so uh, just overflowing, you know, it, it, it's, it's intense. And I, and I mean that in the sense place, it, it, there's, there's an intensity to what's happening here and, and how beautiful that is. Um, but also to see the the mystery, but also the gentleness of the Lord, that this kind of intense union in this kind of, we can talk about the violence of sin that has caused this disunity um, throughout our lives, whether that's original sin or actual sin, but how that's healed through the gentleness and humility of the Eucharist. Like the, the Lord has like restored this image and likeness within us. The Lord has restored our integrity. The Lord has restored the unity between him and us within ourselves and amongst each other he's restored all this not via violence but just through this true hum humble and gentle sacrament that is the eucharist and um it doesn't take away from its intensity in that sense um but how how really spectacular and, and beautiful that is um yeah i, I don't know i want to kick it back to you i mean we had just a little bit left, but like final thoughts on the unity that we receive as this kind of, um, like, like you were saying, this kind of the end and the final aspect of it all. Yeah, I, I would just say, don't be scandalized by the formulations of the sacred scriptures of the church's tradition, which emphasize mm -hmm. the intimacy mm -hmm. and the sublimity of this unity. 
Because yeah. a lot of times when we talk about unity, we're like, yeah, yeah, like I went bowling and like I saw one of my friends there and we were both wearing the same bowling shirt and it was like so unified. It's like, no, no, no. We're talking about more here than a bowling team. I don't think anyone actually goes bowling and no one talks like that. So there you go. Great example, Father Gregory. <laughs> um, but like the, the images with which the sacred scriptures communicate the intimacy and sublimity of this unity, they're astounding, right? And I'm thinking about the subsequent tradition. When St. Thomas tries to find an adequate way in which to describe this unity, both in Christ and in the Eucharist, he, he, just, he just kind of runs out of options. He just says, <laughs> it's, like, it's like you were born without a hand, and then you have like a hand attached to where your hand ought to be, and your soul like floods that hand with its life force. It's like, that's how we're grafted into the Godhead. It's like, dude, that is stupendous. I mean, talking about our Lord's human nature. And when he describes our Lord's human nature, he likens it to the, the body of a soul. Mm -hmm. It's not a matter of like this part and that part where you just kind of glue them together or hope for the best and just slam them as it were adjacent. It's like, no, 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 no. We're talking about a composite thing. We're talking about one reality. Again, without being pantheistic or panentheistic about it, we're talking about a union of an incredibly sublime and intimate sort. Um, so the union to which, you know, we, we attain or towards which we strive during this, you know, like this present life, it's not a mere compromise, right? It's not a collection. It's not a convenient arrangement, right? It's like his heart beats in time with ours, you know, like his blood pumps through our veins, his divine life courses through our nature and transforms it such that we become genuinely partakers thereof. And, you know, so the psalmist can say without hesitation, you are all of you gods, sons and daughters of the most high, mm -hmm. which our Lord takes to his lips, you know, when rebuking the Israelites of his day for not thinking that his claims, you know, to such an intimate and sublime union with the Godhead should be on the lips of a human person. But insofar as he jests with them, he emboldens ourselves, you know, he emboldens us to take those types of pronouncements to our own lips. So, yeah, it is, it is a terrible and good reality. Big fan. Big fan. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you once again to all of our supporters. Uh, if you'd like to tithe to our work, please check us out on patreon.com slash godsplaining. Uh, follow us on all social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Like, subscribe, leave a five-star review on any uh, podcast platform where you find this. And please share this episode with those that you think may, may enjoy it. And it really help us, helps us out to further and spread uh, the word of the work uh, that we are doing here. Please visit godsplaining.org uh, to shop our merchandise and get dates and information on upcoming Godsplaining events. Once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, it's a part of a multi-episode series on the Eucharist. So if this is your first uh, time listening to this, go back and listen to our other episodes um, that we have and see how they all build on each other and integrate with each other. And please continue to uh, listen to other episodes that we have. Uh, thank you for uh, all that you do to support us. Please know that you are in our prayers. God bless.